0: The views and opinions expressed on WXOJLP are solely those of the original hosts of their respective programs. These views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of Valley Free Radio Incorporated, its volunteers, or any other hosts, guests, or programs on this station.
1: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time of the week where we talk about science science. You can find me not on Friday nights. If you are interested in hearing some or reading some great science information, you can find the science-based... Evidence based radio, sorry, uh, Facebook page. And so that's where I post items throughout the week that I won't have time to talk about uh, on Friday evenings, or I post a lot of things that are more visual there videos, pictures, even the occasional uh, picture post of a cute animal. Uh, today I posted a picture of a toucan. That had a 3D printed, part of its beak had been 3D printed for it. And I thought that was pretty cool. Uh It's a great use of 3D printing to give an animal back part of its body. So, very cool. And, yeah. Now, let me also note that next week will be a back-to-school special. Sigh. <laughs> But I saw a couple of articles and I thought, you know, it would be a good thing to do. Um, So if you're interested in the research on whether reading books or tablets is actually uh, better for retention of knowledge, uh, what the science has to say about abstinence-only sex ed, though I bet you can figure out what that is without me actually saying it, uh, and other back-to-school topics, be sure to tune in. Um, it's not quite exactly specifically tied to, uh, back to school, but it is something that a lot of people who are in school deal with. So we're also going to talk a little bit about, uh, loneliness and, uh, depression, um, next week. So do come back for that and, uh, we will try and talk about a couple of interesting things, not all just sad things. And in that uh, spirit tonight, we uh, last week was a pretty, uh, had a pretty heavy half to it. Uh, we've been dealing with some pretty terrible things. And so this week I wanted to uh, give everyone a bit of relief, talk about some, uh, go back to basics and talk about just a bunch of random science things that don't have much to do with what's going on Um and so there are a couple, you know, less than amazing uh facts here, but there is a lot less uh just talking about how terrible everything is. Um so let us start out. And this is a great story because it's one of those quintessential stories about the pursuit of scientific knowledge. So tonight we're going to head back to familiar ground as I noted um and so one of the most familiar grounds around here seems to always be, well, space <laughs> and stars. For some reason, um, I swear until I started this show, I did not read nearly as much about uh, space news, even though I was constantly reading about science things. It's very interesting how it just there seems to have been a real boom in the last couple of years about uh breakthroughs in um, the realm of astronomy so the first thing I want to talk about is a team using the very large telescope infrarometer uh, at the Paranal Observatory in Chile and they've been able to image the star Antares in incredible detail it is almost certainly the most detailed image of a star to date However, it turns out that with this new level of detail, there are new questions to answer. (laughs) The team found that there are quickly moving gas clumps in the atmosphere of the star for which theories, current theories cannot account. Convection alone cannot explain the observed turbulent motions and atmospheric extension the authors write in the paper which was published last week in the journal nature suggesting the operation of a yet to be identified process in the extended atmosphere. And so Antares is a red supergiant. Uh, it's in the constellation Scorpius around 555 light years away. So it's pretty far away. Um, But it's also much larger than our sun. Our sun's a pretty small sun uh, compared to sort of all of the suns that are out there, all of the stars that are out there. Uh, The sun is a pretty small one. If it were to replace our sun in the solar system, it would actually engulf the entire inner solar system. And so it would go all the way out to the orbit of Mars. Now, the original image was achieved in 2014 using four telescopes. And so basically the extra large or um, the uh, very large, I wanted to make sure I got it right, the very large telescope is actually not one telescope. It's actually four telescopes that take synchronized shots of a star or an object. And then what they do is that they take those multiple um, synchronized shots of data, and they are then reconstructed with a special analysis algorithm, which turned uh, turns the data into essentially an image that would be taken by a telescope as big as all four telescopes combined. Now, I keep saying image because this isn't a picture necessarily. Um, It is in the infrared, but um, it's not so much a picture as it is um, data and information. It's not like a visible light image. And of course, one big caveat to the finding is that the telescopes are only able to gather infrared light. And so more observations, including in the visible light range, will be needed to Confirm that what is being seen in the infrared is actually what's going on, though it does seem likely because this same weird phenomena was found uh, in Betelgeuse. And so actually, interestingly enough, a picture of Betelgeuse had been or an image of Betelgeuse had been the most detailed before this picture of Antares and they had found similar gas pockets Around Betelgeuse. However, they weren't as impressive. Uh, They were moving at about a fourth of the speed as those around Antares. But there's also another caveat as well, which is that uh, Antares has an irregular pulse, which can actually make it rather difficult to model. And remember, they're using algorithms here. But it almost certainly does indicate that despite all of this, there is something going on in these stars. Uh, For which our current models do not have any explanation. But this is actually great. (laughs) It is a great example of how much the world still has hidden from us and how much more science there is to be done. Uh, This is one of those great things where we look at something that we think we know and then we find out that we are completely wrong. And instead of getting really discouraged, that's super, because that means we get to go back to the drawing board, figure out what we're missing, and go from there. And that's what I'm always trying to uh, remind people about science is that the one thing about science is that it's not static. And that is not a bug. That is a feature. Uh, The whole point of science is that you can Continue to change your opinions based on new evidence and so sure something that seems totally reasonable now might seem absurd in 50 years but that's not a faulty part of science that's actually part of the beauty of science um and so yeah <laughs> it's one of those it's it's totally the reason why I love science um, because it's not static and it's not dogmatic that it's completely open to being wrong and finding out new things. Now sometimes that might take a while and obviously as with any system run by humans there is always uh, some resistance to change in any way shape or form but uh, especially with things like this that are not particularly uh, controversial or don't sort of overturn some sort of deeply held uh, theorem. It's pretty easy for people to say, huh, we don't get that. We have to go back and look at our models again. So yeah, very exciting. I'm sorry to be such a cheerleader, but I do just love this sort of thing. And uh, let's stick with space for a moment to talk about another new study uh, on what could possibly explain the weirdness of the star K eight four six two eight five two, which is also known as Tabby's Star, named after Tabith Boyajian at Yale, who first noted the odd behavior of the sun's uh, or of the star's light signature. And so I've mentioned this star before. It's the, it has a really interesting and completely irregular uh, set of dips in brightness. And so generally, if there's a dip in a brightness, that's how, you know, you find exoplanets. But the thing is, is that it's usually at a regular interval. But Tabby star, the dips in um, brightness, they're completely irregular. There doesn't seem to be any pattern. And so people have been trying to figure out how on Earth that is. So everything from comet debris to aliens has been suggested for the origin of this irregularity. Uh, Some people suggested that it might be contained in a Dyson sphere um, by aliens, which would be something that basically almost completely enclosed it in order to suck up all its energy for them to then use it um, in their civilization. But that's pretty far-fetched. And uh, so this new study from a team led by Mario uh, Circuria... um, Sir uh, at the University of Antioquia in Colombia, suggests that the behavior might be caused by a Saturn-like exoplanet. And so the reason they suggested that is that it would be the rings that would be the important part of this, um, because the rings could be moving slightly with each orbit, and that could in fact cause the irregular pattern. And so they note that We found that tilted ringed structures undergo short-term changes in shape and orientation that are manifested as strong variations of transit depth and contact times, even between consecutive eclipses. And so what they suspect is that, you know, you could have this planet going around and it's going around in a fairly Uh, standard orbit but because all of its ring debris because if you um, uh, in case you don't know the rings of say Saturn they are composed of very small um, to medium-sized pieces of rock and ice and just uh, the bits that didn't make it into the actual planet and so obviously those little bits can move they can shift uh, based on tidal forces and things like that. And so they're not static, necessarily. However, as with most hypotheses, uh, especially those based on models, uh, there are doubters about this explanation. So some other scientists suggest that even with the irregularities in the rings, there would still be a pattern of orbit of the planet itself, which has yet to be determined. However... um. Sucuria, I'm so sorry about my butchering names, (laughs) maintains that his work shows astronomers that there are indeed mechanisms that can alter the light curves. These changes can be generated by the dynamics of the moons or the rings, and the changes in these systems can occur in such short scales as to be detected in just a few years, he told New Scientist magazine. So basically, uh, the jury is still very much out on why this star is the way it is. Um, This is another great example of a kind of uh, puzzle that we're trying to solve. And um, yeah, this is definitely one where (laughs) it's kind of anybody's guess at this moment. I think we need to develop better technology, uh, better telescopes and things like that in order to be able to see what's going on there better. Um, And so a lot of this stuff, I'm super excited about the James Webb um, Space Telescope, and I'm crossing all of my fingers uh, that it doesn't have a Hubble uh, issue uh, when it gets into space, I think that uh, NASA has definitely gotten better in the last few years. They've had some great successes. They've had a great track record. And so um, I'm not particularly worried about that. I think it's going to be amazing. And I think it's going to really open up some new areas in astronomy. And we will continue to find out amazing and awesome new things about the world. Um that we can be distracted by uh, while everything else is falling apart. Anyways, um, so uh, let us now switch gears and talk about a couple of really interesting archaeological discoveries. So first, let us go way back and talk about the birth of trigonometry. Now, of course, you might be thinking, oh no, math, Why isn't this on next week's show, Um, which it could have technically have been, Um, but this is a really interesting and um, fun story, and it doesn't require you to know any math. (laughs) And so until recently, most people agreed that it was the Greeks that invented trigonometry. It turns out, though, that the Babylonians uh, beat them by over a thousand years. And what's more... They were better at it. Now, how are we just discovering this? Through the examination of an ancient cuneiform tablet referred to as Plimpton 322. Now, it was discovered in the early 1900s, but until now, scholars didn't really agree on just what it represented. And so a team from the University of New South Wales in Australia has set out to change that fact. Our research reveals that Plimpton 322 describes the shape of right-angled triangles using a novel kind of trigonometry based on ratios, not angles and circles, says one of the researchers, Daniel Mansfield. It is a fascinating mathematical work that demonstrates undoubted genius. Now, for some time, researchers had known that the tablet contained a list of Pythagorean triplets, um, or sets of numbers that can be plugged into models for calculating the sides of a right-angle triangle. However, the debate came down to what they really represented. Were they theory-based or just exercises for teaching? Now, what's neat about the Babylonians is that instead of our base 10 mathematics, they used base 60, or ses- sexagesimal systems. So think modern time calculations, 60 minutes um, in an hour, things like that. And uh, so the researchers were able to take their knowledge of ancient Babylonian mathematics, um, because they do actually have fragments of texts on theory. And that's one of the really cool things is that, of course, the Babylonians and other um, people that they spread to Um, and that were around at that time, they were writing down all of their information on these great little clay tablets, uh, using cuneiform, which is basically a series of symbols that involve, um, lines and wedges. Um, and if you've never seen cuneiform, it's very cool. Um, you can definitely look it up and see, uh, how to spell your name in cuneiform and things like that. Um. And so it's really interesting because it is a um it's semi pictographic, and so some of the um characters are definitely based on pictographs, so it clearly developed from pictographs but um I always think it's fascinating that cuneiform was only semi-pictographic, and then later on, uh, when the Egyptians developed their written language, they actually stuck with pictograms, or reverted to pictograms. I always think that's interesting. I don't have any theory on it. Um, That's kind of just a complete aside. Um, But they did all of these uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, sort of administrative uh, and also scholarly um, texts, And they were baked in clay, and clay is really resilient. Uh, If there's one thing that you find in all archaeological digs of any time period, practically, um, after the very, very early uh, Neolithic, you find potsherds. It is the uh, sort of bread and butter of archaeology to find bits of pottery because clay is durable. And so we actually have a lot of writing um, from the ancient Babylonians, um, from the ancient people who adopted the use of cuneiform tablets. Um, and I definitely would suggest looking more into that if you're interested um, and so the researchers, anyways, <laughs> were able to take their knowledge of ancient Babylonian mathematics and determine that the fragment of text would once have had six columns and thirty eight rows of number numbers. so obviously it's had some damage to it. It's not perfect, um, but it would definitely have had a whole series of these um, triples. And so they suggest it may have been a reference tool for ancient scribes to aid in designing buildings, uh, or design building palaces, uh, temples, and canals. And so if the new study is proven out, and the evidence looks pretty solid as far as I can tell, it would prove that the Babylonians were using trigonometry 3,700 years ago, long before Hipparchus, a Greek astronomer, was said to have invented it. So the tablet dates from between 1822 and 1762 BCE, while Hipparchus was known to have lived around 120 BCE. And not only that, but it's the most accurate trigonomic table in history. Because, remember, the Babylonians used a sexagesimal system with base 60. And so that meant they were able to calculate fractions more precisely. And if you cast your mind back to high school math, fractions are a big part of trigonometry. So more remainderless fractions um, means more precision. So the more fractions you have that when you divide into them, they don't leave... Um, You know, it's not four with two left over. Um, The more you have fractions that don't have anything left over, obviously, the more precise that your measurements are going to be. And in fact, so much so that the researchers suggest that modern mathematicians might even have a thing or two to learn from this amazing tablet and the amazing uh, mathematics that went into creating it. This means it has great relevance for our modern world, says Mansfield. Babylonian mathematics may have been out of fashion for more than 3000 years, but it has possible practical applications in surveying, computer graphics and education. This is a rare example of the ancient world teaching us something new. And so the team has produced a short YouTube video uh, to explain this better, and I've actually linked it on the Facebook, so it should come up um, on the Facebook page around 7 o'clock. And so uh, I would say the next time someone mentions ancient aliens, uh, remind them that the ancients were perfectly capable um, of solving problems themselves coming up with incredibly abstract and uh, precise mathematics uh, without the intervention of any outside sources now of course some will then go on to say uh, to argue the point that they were given this information uh, and these tables by the aliens and at that point it's better just to either change the subject completely or walk away. Um, I think that it's really important to uh, keep in mind that ancient people were just as smart as us. And that's another uh, familiar theme here on evidence-based radio that uh, ancient people were pretty darn smart. um, And sometimes we can absolutely learn from them, even though we think that we're incredibly more advanced than they were. And in many ways we are, obviously. Um, and since this is the radio, uh, on a musical note, you may like me, uh, now have the song Belshazzar, uh, sung by Johnny Cash in your head. And if you don't, um, you should definitely go and listen to it. Um, because it's a great little, uh, Johnny Cash spiritual, um, which I have a, uh, fond, uh, spot in my heart for Johnny Cash spirituals uh even though I myself am not particularly uh religious at all uh I do um love Johnny Cash singing about uh things like Belshazzar anywho uh the next story is um it's from a couple of months ago, but I still thought it was incredibly interesting and fun. So um, I definitely wanted to talk about it. And so back in late June, a cache of around 25 thin slices of wood were found buried near the Fort of Vindolanda. Now, luckily, they were in a section of anaerobic soil, which prevented rotting. Um, They were found in a section of soil that had been cleared for a building to have been erected. Now, Vindolanda was a huge Roman fort, um, and it would have sat just south of Hadrian's Wall in what is now Northumberland, England. Um, Maybe not a huge one, but it's definitely substantial. Now, the fort has actually been excavated over several decades, and many such strips have been discovered. Now, despite that, this new find is exciting due to the level of preservation. Like I said, they were in an anaerobic uh, layer of um, soil, so they were really, really well preserved. And the reason that all of these things are interesting is because they aren't just slivers of wood that were randomly discarded. They are slivers of wood that had writing on them. They're basically the equivalent of Roman postcards or post-it notes. And so they are very, very exciting to find. So um, they note that some of these new tablets are so well preserved that they can be read without the usual infrared photography and before going through the long conservation process there is nothing more exciting than reading these personal messages from the distant past and this is from robin burley an archaeologist who oversaw excavations in the 70s 80s and 90s um and so burley's son andrew is now the director of the excavation at the site and so since the 70s, these letters have been found throughout the site. And basically, they tell the story of daily life of the um, Tungrians, uh, who are now Belgians, Batavians, who are now the Dutch, Varduli, uh, now the Spanish, and others who lived and how they layered their society from commander to slave. Now, um, bit of history nerd note... Uh, one of the things that the Romans were very, very, very particular about is that when they conquered people and brought them into the fold, you know, they were pretty much like as long as you worship our gods and don't try and kill us, we'll all have a good time and you can... Uh, Part of the thing was that, you know, if you joined the army and you served well in the army, you could become a citizen. Um, And so a lot of people did that. But one of the things that Romans did, because they were uh, pretty good military people, uh, they held an empire for a very long time, is that when they garrisoned a troop, uh, uh, when they garrisoned a fort, they would always send people from other lands to garrison a fort. So if you were from Spain, you were never going to be garrisoned in Spain, you were going to be garrisoned in North Africa, or in England, or somewhere like that. And so basically, they thought that if they kept people in, um, from separate ethnic groups in different places, that It would encourage them to have less fraternization with the locals and thus not be so prone to, uh, you know, going soft on them or, you know, being bribed and things like that, which I think did pretty much work out for them. Again, they had a very successful run of uh, ruling most of what was the uh, known Western world at that point and so you find all sorts of things beer requests birthday party invitations complaints about the locals including derogatory slang words and even and the collection even contains the oldest example of women's handwriting from Europe and so this is thanks to two high ranking commanders wives Um, who would write back and forth to one another and who talked a lot about their fate as solitary, lonely figures basically cut off from the rest of Roman society. Because at this point, England was kind of a backwater. Uh, It was a frontier area uh, where they really would have had to live rough by Roman standards. Um, And so another amazing fact about this new set of wood strips is that they actually refer to a man named Masculus. And so he was asking for a leave or uh, a comiatus for whom the archeologists had actually already found correspondence. And so his earlier note was one of those beer notes. And so uh, in the past, he, they had found a correspondence where he says Uh, where um, basically he is recorded writing to the commander Falvius Serialis asking that he send beer for the men as he could not answer for them, quote-unquote, if they did not receive it. Now, at the time, he was stationed away from Vindolanda and needed the supplies from the base. And this is from Andrew Burley. And uh, so, yeah, it's incredibly amazing to be able to read day-to-day missives from people who lived so long ago. Um, It's one of the really cool things about um, these kind of archaeological uh, sites, because if you think about it, a lot of archaeology, you end up with mostly knowing about sort of the kings and queens and, uh, you know, the nobles, because that's who people wrote about. But by the time of the Romans, you had literate citizens who could write for themselves and who could, you know, tell their story. Um, Or there were scribes who could tell their story for them. And um, so it's really a sort of a turning point where you can learn much more about common people from themselves, rather than having to kind of find, if you can, um, you know, the archaeological remains and kind of build a picture from there. So it's really, really fascinating. But uh, it's also time to take a break. So let us uh, pause for a minute for some PSAs and uh, show promos. And then we'll come back and we will pivot to the animal kingdom. So hang on for just a moment.
0: Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge-drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andi Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. What did they just say? If you often find yourself asking that, you may benefit from the new audio-enhancing technology available at the Forbes Library in Northampton. Designed to work with or without a hearing aid, the new and improved audio-visual systems in our meeting rooms, along with countertop loop systems at our service desks, are some of the new technology the library now has federal funds provided by the institute of museum and library services and administered by the massachusetts board of library commissioners you'll now find hearing the librarian and guest lecturers a whole lot easier call 413-587-1017 or email info at forbeslibrary.org to find out more looking for an international experience but unable to travel? Consider hosting an adult international student studying English. Maybe from the Congo, Iran, Tibet, Saudi Arabia, Spain, Uganda, Tunisia, India, or Iraq. We need friendly hosts interested in a true cross cultural interchange, fluent in English, and living within a 15 minute walk or convenient bus ride to downtown Northampton. Join ILI's nonprofit effort to create language and cultural immersion experiences for our students. A stipend offsets costs. For more details, go to www.ili.edu or email amy at ili.edu. We're the International Language Institute of Massachusetts in downtown Northampton.
1: Sure. Okay, and we are back to talk some more about sciencey type things. And I said we're going to move on to the uh, animal kingdom now. Uh, the first thing we are going to talk about, unfortunately, is uh, extinct, but you may be happy about that. Uh, and so there is a uh, new discovery that has been published. It's Mexican scientists have recently discovered the remains of a previously unknown species of giant sloth. Now, giant sloths might sound amazing, uh, but they are not your average adorable, uh, often sleepy sloth that has become the darling of the internet uh, and has captured everyone's heart, including my own. Uh, Sloths are really adorable. And if you've never seen a a video of a baby sloth, uh, you should go and do that right now. Um, Or maybe not right now. Maybe in another 20 minutes or so. Um, But these guys were, as the name implies, giant. And we're not talking just bigger than sloths that we know today. We are talking about the fact that known species um, that have been found and measured um, of giant sloths can be compared to the size of, for instance, a modern bison or black bear. And they could have reached heights of up to nine feet tall. And they still would have had those big, big claws. Um. So yeah, you probably are relieved that these guys uh, did die out during the end of the last ice age. Um, and so because this creature died in a sinkhole, uh, recovering the remains has been rather hard, which is why it's taken kind of a long time to uh, report about this and to start to do some science on it. And so they were found originally way back in 2010, um, but again, sinkhole. And in fact, it's a sinkhole where they are almost 165 feet below the surface of the water in the uh, sinkhole, which is also or is often called in Mexico, they're called uh, cenote and um, you may have seen pictures of cenotes before they're usually these incredibly striking uh, turquoise blue circles uh, surrounded by jungle and um, they're incredible and uh, there's a lot of cave diving that happens in there and of course um, a lot of very dangerous uh, cave diving uh, even though I would love to do it I would never because I would be terrified Um of losing my way or uh, getting snagged on something. It just, uh. but anyways, uh, it obviously therefore has taken several years to really coordinate the efforts to bring up um, parts of the skeleton, but they have managed. They have so far um, been able to pull up the skull and jawbone and a variety of vertebrae, ribs, claws, and other assorted bits of the skeleton. And so they hope to bring up the rest next year. And that will then allow them to do things like determine the height and uh, possible weight range of this species. And they're actually pretty excited because the skeleton is almost complete. And uh, so the efforts are being led by the uh, National Institute of Anthropology and History down in Mexico. And the researchers suspect that the sinkhole was actually mostly dry uh, when the unfortunate creature fell into it. And that has helped it to sort of be in the bottom layer. And then um, as things grew up around it and the water started to seep in, it remained on the bottom pretty much intact. And so um, that is why it's so well preserved. And so it has been named... Shibalba onyx oviceps. Now, Shibalba is actually a reference to the Mayan uh, underworld. And so the Maya believed that uh, Xibalba was a real place that you could get to. Um, and they basically believed that it could be accessed through uh, caves and uh, cenote. And so you'll often find in cenotes, um, remains of offerings from um, mayan uh people, and so they also believe that uh pote, as they have nicknamed the specimen, would have lived sometime between ten thousand six hundred and forty seven years and ten thousand three hundred and five years ago uh, during the age of megafauna um, and so I can remember when I was growing up, uh, I had a National Geographic map where, you know, on one side it has a map. And on the other side, it usually had some sort of uh, illustration. And it was an illustration of all the megafauna that had once lived in uh, North America. And I had it on my wall for years. And I was always thinking, like, wouldn't it be really awesome if these things were still there? And then I was like, "Mm, maybe not. Um, I think it's probably a good thing for us that the uh, megafauna uh, died out or were hunted to extinction, depending on uh, the species and uh, what theory you believe. Um, Because even though, you know, the giant sloth would have been a herbivore, I still definitely wouldn't want to have met it in the middle of the night. Um, It would have still been very, very terrifying. But um, yeah, so it's pretty cool that they found this new species. Um, And mostly, you know, it's a sloth, and sloths are awesome, um, even if they're terrifying uh, giant uh, ancient sloth beasts. So hopefully they'll be able to recover the rest of that skeleton, and we'll get to learn more about it. Okay, so speaking of large animals, this is actually a very just a fun story. Um, This is the quintessential fun story to... uh, not worry about anything. And so it involves water buffaloes in Turkey. So apparently, they have been found to carry around tiny frogs, which cling to their fur. And so yeah, um, basically, an ornithologist was out birdwatching, watching, uh, and so uh, he notes that the initial observation was accidental, as is often the case in ecological research, and uh, that is study lead, Pyotr Zuninaik, um, who saw the spectacle while bird watching in the uh, Kismo Kizilirmak Delta, um, one of the Middle East's largest wetlands, and so. Zodoniak is uh, actually an ecologist at Poland's Adam Mikowitz University, and he and his team returned two years in a row to the same area uh, where farmers tend to release their Anatolian water buffalo uh, to basically hang out in the marshes during the autumn. Um, and so they're in these big uh, marshes, marshy areas, which of course would have frogs in them. And so they observed frogs clinging to the buffalo uh, on both occasions. So it wasn't just a fluke and it wasn't just one or two buffalo. It was pretty much all of them. Um, And so what they suspect is that the water buffalo basically present a perfect environment for the frogs uh, because they can use these basically giant warm-blooded animals uh, as basically walking heating pads. And as an added bonus, they can eat the insects that are attracted to and congregate on the bodies of the water buffaloes. So basically, it's heaven for frogs. And um, they also noted that fall is when the frogs are most plentiful. And so if they have a lot of frogs in the area, uh, competition for food and resources is uh, more fierce, and therefore uh, may have fostered this kind of odd uh, potential partnership. And so it's probable that the frogs actually help the water buffalo by removing potential disease-causing and or simply annoying pests. And um, it's really yet to be determined specifically that this is mutualism, uh, but we have we have definitely observed uh, what can be seen as mutualism in other uh, animals. So uh, for instance, the main uh, kind of example is the mutualism between African animals, uh, such as cattle and rhino and birds. So um, I'm almost positive you've seen pictures of sort of animals on the African savannah, uh, big buffalo herds, um, or bite, um, excuse me, wildebeest herds and zebras and, you know, rhinos and all of this. And they always have birds on them. Basically the birds are doing the exact same thing. They're eating the insects off of the, uh, animals. And they're also taking rests on the animals and, you know, basically doing, uh, being, you know, birds and, uh, freeloading (laughs) just a tiny bit. Um, But yeah, so they think that this is probably just, you know, frogs doing exactly the same thing, except it's never been seen before. Um, So this is definitely the first time that amphibians have been observed to engage in this type of behavior. And so um, one buffalo was actually observed to be covered with up to 27 frogs at one point, um, but most averaged between two and five. Um, So I would suspect that it's possible uh, that if nothing else, they're not a terrible strain uh, on the water buffalo as it grazes in the marshlands. So if it's not mutualism, it might just be that the water buffalo don't actually care that much. Um, about having something on their back like that, so let us segue now to a story about uh birds, because you know we were just talking about them <laughs> incidentally, but let's actually shift to talking about birds now, and let's talk about hummingbirds now, hummingbirds are of course amazing, we already know that um, and so uh But this is a really interesting uh, sort of tidbit about them. And of course, we already know that a lot of birds are super smart. um, And we talked about that extensively on this show. But birds are also really, really amazing in other ways. And so have you ever wondered how a hummingbird, which is often not much larger than an insect, manages to stay warm in winter? Yes, winter. Not all hummingbirds migrate south during the winter. There are definitely hummingbirds that stay um, in cold weather uh, climes. And so they are able to, um, so they have needed to develop some sort of mechanism in order to survive this kind of cold. And so according to Oregon State ecologist Adam Hadley, the birds are able to enter torpor, Um, which is an energy conserving state similar to hibernation. And so they do this each evening during the cold months of winter. And so uh, hummingbirds generally maintain a body temperature of around 107 degrees. But during torpor, they can allow the body to cool to a remarkable 48 degrees. They also drop their heartbeat uh, with the blue-throated hummingbird, for for example, uh, decreasing the beat of its heart from 1260 beats per minute to 50 to 180 beats per minute. And it turns out that this isn't, uh, only this isn't their only superpower. Um, they are also incredibly tough birds. Um, And they are extending their territory north um, because they have this great ability. And um, it is there has been a mild uh, temperature trend. And, of course, people are also getting into uh, hummingbirds. So there are more hummingbird friendly backyards, um, places for them to find food and to stop off. And so they've now reached even uh, as far north as Vancouver, British Columbia. And so, um, other fun, amazing facts about these crazy little birds is they also have the highest metabolism of any animal other than insects, and they are the only birds that can fly backwards. And so, uh, they're also, quote, unique among birds in their flying efficiency, Hadley says. They are, um... Being able to invert their wings and generate lift from both the upstroke and downstroke, similar to insects. And uh, so they are not just pretty little spokes models, uh, but they are rather hardy little critters that can take extremes and keep coming back uh, to suck up all of your yummy yummy uh, sugar water <laughs> Okay. So I want to quickly talk about this last story here because it is something that I had been really worried about, but scientists saying, maybe we don't need to worry about that. Not that there aren't plenty of things we still need to worry about, but this one we might have dodged a bullet on. So let's talk about this. Um, it turns out that there has been an article about global warming that didn't immediately make me want to burst into tears, which is a feat these days. So scientists have been concerned about the possibility of a runaway feedback loop of global warming brought about by the release of methane stored in the Arctic tundra and marine hydrates stored beneath the ocean. And so this theory is actually called the clathrate gun hypothesis. Well, geologists have turned to the geologic record to see if this sort of event has happened in the past. And so they found that the last ice age transition, um, when basically warming sped up around 11,500 years ago, was not characterized by massive increase in methane released from either the tundra or the oceans. So it looks like the rise in methane was caused instead by the spread of tropical wetlands. So this is at least one nightmare scenario that we might be able to avoid in the coming years. And uh, of course, it isn't all silver lining. Uh, Edward Brooks, co-author of the study and an Oregon, uh, Oregon State University paleoclimatologist, noted that, quote, Our findings show that natural geologic emissions of methane, for example, leakage from oil seeps or gas deposits in the ground, are much smaller than previously thought. That means that a greater percentage of the methane in the atmosphere today is due to human activities, including oil drilling and the extraction and transport of natural gas. And so lead author Vasily Petrenko an associate professor of earth and environmental sciences at the University of Rochester, notes that we could potentially use a reduction in methane, which while not as abundant as carbon dioxide, is actually a more potent greenhouse gas to actually make a dent in our overall impact on the environment if we can manage to do it. And so the group was able to measure the amount of methane present in the atmosphere at the end of the last ice age by probing bubbles of air trapped in ice cores from Antarctica's Taylor Glacier. And so in order to determine how much methane was from either marine hydrates or permafrost, they measured the amount of carbon-14 in the methane. Methane from either of these sources would have been old enough that all of the radioactive carbon-14 would have decayed by that point and what they found was that there was just around 10% of this old methane in the samples. A lot of people have painted the Arctic as a methane time bomb, Brooks told physics.org, but this shows that it may be more stable than we thought. Now, past performance isn't always a predictor of the future, but it is a good analog. We should be more concerned about anthropogenic sources of methane into the atmosphere, which continue to increase. And so the research points to the fact that fuel sources such as natural gas, which of course have been touted as the bridge to green, enemy, to green energy, uh, may in fact be a larger problem than we thought. All of the natural gas that we mine is very old and leaking inevitably occurs during that process, Brooks says, natural gas is considered a cleaner energy source than coal, but it can be a significant problem depending on how much of the methane is leaking out. So, while this isn't great news, it 's certainly less ominous than we thought for than we might have thought a little while ago. I know that I, for one, was really, really worried about those natural methane uh, deposits releasing uh, from this from the warming, and so this at least makes me feel a little better about that. Um, so on that note of slight happiness, uh, we are going to uh, wrap up for tonight. Uh, please do stay tuned for civil politics. I am sure they will have lots of things to say about, uh, lots of what's going on in the world. So if you actually want to dive into that, um, and you know, you definitely talk, you should definitely listen to them because they're very good about talking about it. All right. I will be back next week. Have a great uh, week until then. Good night.